Welcome back to our podcast, Regulation Matters, a clear conversation. Once again, I'm your host, Lyon Dempsey. I'm currently the Chief Compliance Officer with Rick and Benny Associates Family Dentistry here in North Carolina and Virginia, and I'm also CLEAR's President for the 2022-2023 year. As many of you are aware, the Council on Licensure Enforcement and Regulation, or CLEAR, is an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. This podcast is an opportunity for you to hear about important topics in our regulatory community. On today's episode, we'll be exploring the concept of regulatory sandboxes. Joining us today, we have Jan Robinson, Registrar and CEO of the College of Veterinarians of Ontario. Micah Matthews, Deputy Executive Director of the Washington Medical Commission, and Bradley Chisholm, Founder and Principal of the Regulators Practice Consultancy. We're glad to have you all with us today. Great to be here. Really nice to be here. Thanks. Well, we're happy to speak with you. And I know one area of clear strategic plan that we've talked about before is exploring the use of regulatory sandboxes to engage with innovators. Now, some of our listeners may be familiar with the idea of regulatory sandboxes in the area of, you know, fintech, you know, financial technology, where it allows innovators to test technologies, products, and services in a, in a controlled environment with some regulatory safeguards. So let's start today with some discussion on what that term regulatory sandbox means. So uh, maybe, Jan, kind of give me a little kind of definition of what that is. Yeah, a definition. Okay, let me give it a try. Uh, I think where we sit would be, I, I think it's important to think about it like a tool. You know, it's really just a, a, a tool to relax legal and regulatory requirements to create a bit of safe space uh, for experimenting, uh, where you've got uh, regulation as a presumed barrier, maybe not a real barrier, but a presumed barrier, and allowing for a bit of an incubator to trial some new things uh, and looking at what's the problem, what are we trying to achieve, are the uh, are reducing the barriers aligned with the public interest in its biggest way of thinking about it. And really, to be quite honest, line, the rest of it is really about project management then. It's really about uh, who's the lead, what does success look like? What are those factors about? Uh, what's the work plan? Are there some milestones? Uh, how are we gonna measure that? And how are we gonna report out on it? Uh, so it's, it's putting some scaffolding around this relaxation concept, but ensuring that it doesn't go so far that what you're doing is causing uh, harm. Gotcha. Bradley, anything to add to that? You know, I, I just think the it's a pretty simple concept. You know, people play in sandboxes and I think uh, creating the constraints for those that we regulate uh, to be able to innovate within some constraints. Um, and again, like Jan said, we kind of pull back perhaps some of the, the traditional regulatory um, uh, frameworks that we have so that regulators are not barriers to professional innovation, which I think is a real danger that that uh, regulators are seen, but are actually at times um, barriers to the shifting, changing uh, professions uh, and occupations that we all that we all work with. So I think it's really important. And I also think and I'm happy to talk about it a little later, but um, as regulators, we need to have our own sandboxes too, because we actually need to be innovating as regulators uh, as well. 
Well, that that brings up a good question, Bradley. So, um, so why is this experimentation important? Uh, you know, for us as regulators, and you know, I mean, and, and could we even go to say that this is imperative that we do? Like, wh where are we on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great question, and I, I'm sure there's lots of different diverse opinions about this. So. Um, but where where this really became real for me, so I was working, I'll kind of go back to where an idea, this idea of experimentation was introduced to me. So I was working in the Attorney General's office in Alberta, the province of Alberta and Canada, and we were developing <clears throat> what was called a safe communities initiative. And the civil servants that developed this project kind of brought the idea and said, we want to go around we want to provide funding to multiple communities throughout the province where the community can create their own um, safe communities project. We'll evaluate the projects, we'll see what's working, see what's not working, and then we'll build future province-wide programs based on the successes or failures of these different community projects. Well, as a young lawyer at the time, political staff, I was like, that's ridiculous do the research let's figure out what the one or two best pro best practices are and let's engage those let's not waste time with you know going to these communities and experimenting and that's when these very patient civil servants introduced me to um uh, the, the work of a guy named David Snowden uh, and his framework called the Kinefin framework it's c-y-n-e-f-i-n it's a welsh it's a welsh word and he talks about different systems and in different types of systems, we have to function differently in order to navigate and lead and innovate within those systems. And two of those systems that he talks about are a complicated system where the means and the ends are known, but often you need to be an expert uh, in order to understand them. So he uses like an airplane engine as an example of a complicated system where you know, the, the pilot pushes the throttle. There's a thousand things that happen for that airplane to move forward. And unless you're an airplane engineer, an airplane mechanic, or a pilot potentially, you don't really know what those thousand things are. But complicated systems is where experts and best practice live. But he, these civil servants that I was working with told me that we're not really working, you know, community safety and crime is not a complicated system it's a complex system you know we could we could do the same thing a hundred times and we could get a different result every time and in those complicated systems we have to experiment and we have to evaluate those experiments and even if something's working for a couple years it might stop working and when i think about the professions that we are regulating right now um, the massive change that they are experiencing, the shifting public expectations that we as regulators are having to deal with, uh, the fact that some of the professions that may have existed 30, 40 years ago, people are questioning whether they should even be in a, a profession anymore. Um, all of those things make me believe that we're actually regulating complex systems, not complicated systems. And therefore, we can't, this a whole idea of best practice or, you know, the best way of doing things, I think has to be challenged. And I, I say that both in terms of the people we regulate and, and their need to innovate and experiment and, and test 
the barriers of things, uh, but also regulators. We have this, this thinking that we are, we have to figure out best practice. And then we create these big programs that then cost millions of dollars and last 30 years. It's just, I think, not the way that we need to be regulating in these complex environments. So that's kind of why I think that experimentation is really necessary is, you know, because we're, we're, we're working in complex systems and so are those who we regulate. That's great, Brad. Jan, you, you have a question? Uh, I don't really comment. have a question. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to jump in for a sec if I could, because I do think that uh, to build on what Bradley's saying is that um, our roles are really changing as well and really evolving, in my opinion. You know, we, we have been about our mandate and completing our mandate, which, of course, isn't going away, and that's important. But increasingly, we're becoming conveners and influencers. Um, of scenarios and situations and problem solving. And so this comes back to how are we contributing to agility uh, in a regulatory environment? And how are we, to put it a different way, leading to the edge of the law? You know, are we simply about executing the law or are we about leading to the edge of the law for the public good? And the um, And I think this has been so important to the organizations I've been involved with for the last several years around looking at where does innovation fit in that and how do we contribute? Yeah, that's great. It definitely does sound like something that regulators, you know, really need to be considering, um, which kind of brings me to the, the next question for Micah on that. Um, if, if you're going to do it, how do you do it properly? Sure. Well, you do want to have some constraints in place so as not to end up with a completely unregulated disaster, such as the recent crypto meltdown of FTX and Alameda Research, or the more healthcare-related one that I've been following since its inception of Theranos. Uh, we, we just saw the, the convictions being handed down on, the, on that particular one. These are both great examples of disruptive innovation without a basis in reality or any real attempt at oversight. Uh, this is all about drawing clear lines where innovation can occur and being specific to where it cannot. And to Jan's comment, um, I think we all should probably recognize that as regulators, we only deal with a very small percentage of the folks who can't seem to deal with the law very well. And so, you know, to reframe what we're looking at leading to the edge of the law, we really should be innovating, looking to empower that arguably say 90% of our licensees who never, or registrants who, who never really have a problem. And you're trying to enable the good work because in, especially in the healthcare space, that means access to care. And so trying to trying to find those complex systems and enable them to, to work well. Uh, so, you know, by drawing the clear lines, we give both the regulators and the public confidence in what areas are changing. And we have to remember that for some sectors of our stakeholders, change brings fear and uncertainty. So for evidence of that, we can look no further, and I'm not being political here, uh, than the healthcare workers and regulators trying to respond to the literal chaos that was unleashed with the US Supreme Court overturning Roe. Uh, no matter what your ideology is there, if you were involved in those sectors, we can all agree that it created vast amounts of uncertainty. Uh, costs in response to both the vacuum of the standards and then addressing the stakeholder concerns of how the regulator would approach this new normal. 
so we must at a minimum address the fear through demonstrating how we will deal with potential negatives of innovation. And remember, it doesn't have to be a huge change. It can be small or done in phases with proofs of concepts uh, just to build that trust and, and to build out that system. Uh, so that builds trust and confidence. And the major shift in mindset, to my mind, is the acceptance of failure. And that's really where the uncertainty on the regulated come into play. You know, in some in some sectors, that's more allowable than others. In finance, it's, quote, only money, despite the personal toll it takes on the retail side. But in aerospace or real estate or healthcare, that can lead to cascade failures that take lives. And so we're seeing an example of this in, in almost real time of the aftermath of the earthquake in Turkey uh, related to the regulation or the, the lack of regulation in building standards that was politically motivated. And so, you know, for those reasons, don't be afraid to start small, but you do need to examine your risk tolerance. Yeah, I uh, just, just to jump on that, I think that that's one of the greatest barriers is, um, you know, that the difference between, you know, creating uh, safe to fail environments, um, be if both again, both for our registrants, um, like what if, what if within those constraints, there is failure? What if there is some risk? Um, how do we, are we okay with that? Uh, but also, uh, people don't like it when regulators fail either. And so one of the challenges, I think, is that if regulators are experimenting with different type of regulatory programs and they're not effective or they're not as effective as, or they fail, um, is there an acceptance of that? And I think, you know, going back to that original story of that, you know, that community safety program in Alberta, you know, fast forward four years later, when we had all the data of all those community programs, and there were some that worked and some that failed. Well, there wasn't a single politician that was willing to take money away from any of those failed. So, it, it, you know, it, the whole concept fell apart because no one wanted to accept failure and say, I'm sorry, that that project is failing. We're no longer going to be doing that. We're going to put our resources towards something that isn't failing. Um, so that uh, relationship with failure at all levels, at government, at the regulator level, at the professional level, I think that's one of the biggest barriers we have um, of, of creating a sandbox. That's so, that's so interesting, actually, um, Bradley, because uh, where I went to was uh, this whole concept of we have the reputation we deserve, right? And we have a reputation of being exceptionally cautious uh, as opposed to courageous. And I think that those are different places and I don't necessarily wanna take us down that rabbit hole line. It's, may, uh, it's maybe a whole new podcast conversation. Right. Uh, but, but you know what, we, we don't talk about, you know, as we try things and as we learn and as we create, and I there's so many, amazing stories about regulators and research and what we're doing but be able to put that out there and to say you know what this worked really well and then this didn't work very well and be better able to describe the why we're supporting this the why we're not supporting that and be able to explain it in a much better way i think creates a different platform for how we become a convener and influencer and jan just because it worked here at this point in time doesn't necessarily mean it will work for you, right? Like that's the other thing too, is this kind of, 
you know, desire to identify and articulate best practice so that others follow suit. Well, we have to be open to what works, you know, what worked in this environment. The environment might be totally different in another province or another state or another country. So for people to recognize that this may or may not work for us, and we have to therefore collect data, we have to test it, we have to ensure that we're meeting our intended outcomes. We can't just assume this is gonna work here because it worked over there. I think that's the other piece too. <clears throat> well, conceptually, I think I understand it, and I think our, our listeners understand it, but from a practical side of things, how do we, like, what kind of things can we see in practice? I mean, like, have can we maybe talk about maybe some emerging examples of how this can be structured and implemented? Um, so maybe Jan, um, can you speak to that a little bit about some of the stuff that you're seeing? Sure, I can give you a couple. Uh, so for veterinary medicine, uh, interestingly, fairly late to the game on the concept of telemedicine. Uh, in Ontario, uh, we set a professional practice standard related to the practice of telemedicine in the veterinary space in 2016, thankfully, because three years later, we really needed it. But on the international stage, it was, uh, it was uh, brand new. But COVID, uh, for many, many reasons, was the perfect Petri dish. And, uh, and the whole issue for veterinary medicine was related to prescribing. And so uh, we were already permitting prescribing for animals with known conditions. So an animal known to the veterinarian with a known condition. That needed to really open up uh, during COVID. And so we were looking at uh, and known animals with new conditions, new owners with new animals. You know, how, it, how did that all look with uh, diagnosing, prescribing and distance? And so it was really an opportunity to test that out for what was working, what was not working. And of course, we're also talking about multiple species. So that's a different ballgame too. Uh, but what it really did was it really advanced our policy work from 2019 to 2022, when we issued a new policy last June, which really uh, put a different kind of scaffolding around uh, how to prescribe in a relationship that was not necessarily one where you were always always seeing the animal. So that's an example. But a different example is not a new problem. So sure, we have a veterinary shortage right now that's really uh, fairly critical, uh, but we've had that emerging with uh, beef farmers and large animal veterinarians in rural practice for years, like a long time. So we really needed to look at solutions around that. And so we acted as convener. We brought together veterinarians, producers, veterinary technicians, industry, uh, the Ontario Veterinary College, brought them into a room to talk about what could these solutions look like? Where could we go? And it's not about the college running the program. It's about how do we help initiate the solution? And so what we have now is a, now, a new look at distributive practice related to the delivery of veterinary medicine in Northern Ontario, where they're looking at how can we challenge the delegation models? So the work between the veterinary and the veterinary technician or non-veterinary auxiliaries. How is it that we look at shared facilities because we accredit facilities like hospitals, we accredit facilities. So how do we look at shared facilities? And how do we look at remote dispensing? 
because we're talking about uh, uh, five, six, seven hours sometimes between locations of where animals need to be seen. And groups have now come together, they're forming solutions, they're seeking money, they're coming back. So these are organic and grassroots solutions that are coming forward to our council with a look within our regulatory sandbox policy to say, not, you know, lots of what they're doing doesn't have a thing to do with our standards, but some things bump into them. So what are the criteria? How can we put it together? How can we look at a two-year experiment related to this? There are two separate models that are gonna be going forward. And we're really excited about the fact that it's a multi-stakeholder initiative that we are keenly a part of that will look at what works, what maybe worked, what didn't work, and uh, where, do, where do we relax a bit more and where do we say, no, this was here because it needed to be here as a rule. I think uh, the Washington Medical Commission's got some things they're working on. Micah, what can you tell us about what you guys are doing? Sure. We've got two items that I can discuss that we're rolling out. So the first, well, we rolled out on the first one. Uh, it was a pandemic-related change where the governor was looking to uh, facilitate practice in the healthcare sector and was asking for ideas on what specific statutes to waive. And so we gave recommendation that uh, the statute requiring practice agreements for physician assistants should be waived for the, for the pandemic just to provide that flexibility and reduce administrative burden. And so this effectively severed the ties between physician assistants and physicians in a supervisory capacity for 28 months, which, you know, from my mind is a perfect study time. And so we looked at the data recently and we found that there was no discernible uptick in complaints against PAs or a noticeable increase in complaints about the lack of supervision of scope of practice issues that uh, I would say detractors or critics would, would certainly be looking for. Um, so unsurprisingly, there is a bill proposing relaxing the restrictions on practice agreements in the legislature currently. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't make cutoffs, so it, it'll be a try again next year scenario for them. Uh, the other project is introducing human-centered design into our complaint process to go beyond the paradigm of file a complaint, process it, send generic letters with the outcomes. Um, we call it the Practitioner Support Program, and we are it's, a, it's one part um, voluntary learning, one part letter of guidance, and, uh, and, but the end result is, is a desire to just interact more in a human-centered way, both with the licensee and the complainant, uh, because there's always going to be questions that get introduced in our, you know, when someone gets a communication from us. And so the, the basics of it is we're starting with the practitioners named in closed complaints and sending them letters with specific suggested learnings and offering a, a phone or video meeting to talk over what's in the complaint and the potential learnings. And it's been well received so far. Uh, people, we, we, we had a valuable learning lesson where we wanted to set up the meeting beforehand. And as it turns out, a lot of them accepted that meeting just because they wanted to know what was in the complaint and who it was. And uh, once they got that information, they got a whole lot less interested. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that was sort of predictable. So we swapped that around and ended up sending the letter first. Um, but, you know, the, the goal here is that it would reduce potentially reduce complaints of a similar nature in the future for this practitioner. And, and so we've, we've done 95 of them so far in, in, since it's been rolled out, and only time and analysis will tell. Uh, so now that we're doing that, we're now implementing the next phase where we're looking at complainants. 
uh, where we'll be giving more specific direction to them and asking for more information to provide a complete complaint because of the many of the 1800 complaints we receive per year get closed with insufficient information to make a decision um, and even though we ask for those sorts of things and specifically on our complaint form so eventually we'll scale up to having individual phone calls uh, with complainants whose reports were closed with practitioner support the goal is to explain the process to them and uh, and the outcome personally and answer any questions they may have obviously we're, we're booking about 30 minutes per phone call on that particular one just because we anticipate there will be a lot of back and forth discussion with complainants uh, and then the final phase of the of the project would be to have specifically trained staff uh, contact every complainant who files a complaint regarding sexual misconduct and discrimination in healthcare, uh, and then a couple of other select issues that don't lend themselves to the typical closure conversation. Uh, we just feel that those are going to need to have a bit more hands-on, more specialized training uh, from the staff who contact them, uh, because right now, you know, for for our group, we require that the investigators and anybody dealing with sexual misconduct receive specific training about victim interview tactics and and understanding the nature of trauma. And so, this the people that will be effectively acting in kind of an ombuds role is gonna they're gonna have to have that kind of training. Uh, and I, I anticipate that there will be some kind of training required for, for dealing with DEI, discrimination in healthcare. But the, the trauma-informed approach for both of those has quite a bit of uh, transferable skills. And so we're, we're hoping that you know, we will get uh, reduced repeated complaints out of that and you know, we'll have a better interaction with a public who engages with us, but not, all, not always in the most pleasant way possible. Excellent. Well, I think it's been uh, very interesting to talk about this concept of, of sandboxes and, and how it can, can apply to professional regulation and kind of see what happens once we get it out into the, to the world and how it works. So uh, we certainly do appreciate you, Jan, Mike, and Bradley for, for speaking with us today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. It's been our pleasure. And we'd like to continue this conversation um, away from this this podcast too. So here are some things for our listeners to think about. Do you ever come across a situation where your rules might be an impediment or barrier to implementing an innovative solution? Has your organization had discussions about the importance of, or even the responsibility of being more innovative? And what policies and criteria could you put in place to give your board organization confidence to move forward with an innovative pilot solution? We'll be posting a discussion thread in our members-only online forums, and we greatly appreciate and thank our members for your feedback. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in for this episode. We'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a clear conversation very soon. If you're new to the Clear Podcast, please subscribe to us. You can find us on Podbean or any of your favorite podcast services. And if you've enjoyed this podcast episode, please leave a rating or comment in the app. Those reviews help us to improve our ranking and make it easier for new listeners to find us. Feel free also to visit us on our website at www.clearhq.org for additional resources, as well as a calendar of upcoming programs and events. Finally, I'd like to thank our CLEAR staff, specifically Stephanie Thompson. She is our content coordinator and editor for this program. Once again, I'm Lyon Dempsey, and I hope to be speaking to you again very soon.